Thank you very much, Raymond, for the warm introduction and your hospitality while I've been with you. And thank, uh, thank you all for coming out tonight. It's great to see you here. I pray it'll be a useful and encouraging time. Uh, does anybody need a handout? Just if anybody came in, if, put up your hand. If you don't have a handout, Ben, and a couple up here, you'll definitely want it. There's a lot of information. It is going to come at you quickly. And I tried to put essential stuff on the page. Looks like, oh, and one up in the front left. Excellent. <clears throat> the Trinity in John's Gospel, John 5, 17 to 30, as Grand Central Station. For many evangelical Christians, the Trinity seems like more of a problem than a solution. It seems like a math problem. How can one plus one plus one equal one? It seems like a logic problem. How can the Father, Son, and Spirit each be the one true God, yet also be distinct from each other? And it seems like an exegetical problem. Where and how does the Bible actually teach the Trinity? Why doesn't the Bible ever give us just a neat, tidy, systematic statement of the doctrine? This lecture will address this problem by focusing especially on its exegetical aspect. Where do we find the Trinity in Scripture? How do we get the Trinity from Scripture? And the main place we're going to look for answers is John 5, verses 17 to 30, which is one of the most richly Trinitarian passages in the most Trinitarian book of the Bible. So I'm calling it the Grand Central Station for the Trinity in the Bible. So many different tracks of Trinitarian teaching converge in this passage. And our main goal in this lecture is to read this passage. In one sense, the whole lecture will be an exposition of the passage. But in order to read the passage, I'm going to introduce and employ a series of eight theological concepts that will serve to guide our reading. Each of these concepts, in fact, serves as a rule for reading Scripture rightly. Now, immediately, when, when many of us hear a phrase like that, a rule for reading Scripture, we, we inherently object. Uh, we don't want any rules imposed from outside to interfere with our reading of Scripture for fear that those rules will distort our reading of Scripture, that they'll impose some type of artificial human tradition or reasoning. And that resistance arises from a good and healthy instinct to respect Scripture and treat Scripture as supreme. But there are at least two kinds of rules out there in the world. One kind of rule is imposed from without, like the speed limit that says you can only dr drive 25 miles an hour on the road right behind me. But there are also rules that emerge from within. It's a rule that a live human being breathes regularly. No breathing, no living. Where you find a live human being, there you find someone breathing. It's a rule. You can count on it. You can take your bearings from it and ask further questions based on that reality. Or, for another example of an internal rule, consider the rules of grammar. No fluent speaker of English would ever utter the sentence, him hit me. Why? Because even if they can't articulate the rule, every English speaker knows that he is the subject form of the pronoun, and him is the object. Even if you don't know how to articulate the rules, you know how to follow the rules and how you talk. It's internalized. It's what it means to be an English speaker. So in this lecture, my goal is to articulate, to make explicit, eight rules in how Scripture speaks about our triune God. 
These are rules that emerge from within Scripture, from what Scripture says and how Scripture says it. These are rules that observe patterns in how Scripture proclaims the triune God. So in each section, I'll first introduce the rule. Generally, I'll briefly show how the rule arises from Scripture, give some sort of a brief statement of that, and then I'll apply the rule to an aspect of the Trinitarian teaching of John 5, 17 to 30. If the proof of the pudding is in the eating, the proof of the theology is in the reading, meaning how well does this theological concept enable us to actually read Scripture rightly? That's the goal. So my goal is to show that these tools slice the text at its joints. They enable us to understand the text and to perceive and articulate its coherence. One last note before we begin the main substance. Uh, This lecture condenses and adapts a draft of the final chapter in a book I'm co-writing with Tyler Whitman, who teaches systematic theology at New Orleans Baptist Seminary. Uh, The book is tentatively titled, Biblical Reasoning, Seeing Christ and the Trinity in Scripture. Lord willing, look for the book in mid-2022 from Baker Academic. And this chapter is going to have to be very thoroughly rewritten because it comes at the end and we've done a whole bunch of other stuff. But here you go. This is a progress report on the book as it's coming. Now for our passage. If you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 5. We're going to be looking here a lot. The context of the passage is that Jesus has just healed a paralytic... And the Jews sought to persecute Jesus, not because he did a healing, but because he did it on the Sabbath, which they took to violate God's command to do no work on the Sabbath. So we pick up in verse 17 of chapter 5. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father." Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, 
and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Rule one, the Christian distinction. The Christian distinction is the distinction between the Creator and His entire creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All things depend on God, and God depends on nothing. All things owe their existence to God, whereas God is self-existent. He simply is. As the theologian Robert Sokolowski has said, and you'll see this on your handout, in Christian belief, we understand the world as that which might not have been. And correlatively, we understand God as capable of existing in undiminished goodness and greatness, even if the world had not been. And because all things depend totally on God, and God depends on nothing, not only is God not a thing in the universe, but He does not differ from things in the universe like everything in the universe differs from everything else in the universe. Instead, as one theologian put it, God is not different from creatures the way in which creatures mutually differ. God differs differently. He's not like the biggest kid on the block, only, you know, a thousand times stronger. He's the one who gives all of those kids all their ranges of strength, no matter how small or great. So we must grasp this distinction, the creator-creature distinction, and we must keep it constantly in mind in order to rightly perceive any of the other mysteries of the Christian confession. The creator-creature distinction is central to the conflict that opens our passage and permeates our passage. In John 5, 16, if you look just a verse up, it's because he healed an invalid on the Sabbath and instructed the man to carry his mat home that Jesus' opponents are angry with him. To this, Jesus responds, my father is working until now, and I am working. This response only raises the stakes and stokes the opposition. Then we see in verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. When he was accused of breaking the Sabbath, Jesus could have responded to their charge by saying, no, I didn't break the Sabbath. It's just your interpretation of the law that's too restrictive. That would have been true. And Jesus offers versions of that argument in similar situations in the Synoptic Gospels. But here, instead, the claim implicit in his answer is, I'm permitted to work on the Sabbath for the same reasons that God the Father is. This dispute over the Old Testament's Sabbath command is intricately entangled in the creator-creature distinction. On the one hand, the Sabbath command rests on an analogy between the Creator and the creature. God created in six days and rested on the seventh, and so He establishes that as a pattern for human labor and rest. That's Genesis 2, 2 and 3, Exodus 20, verse 11, 33, 17. On the other hand, this reference to the pattern of God's creating work 
reminds all those who are obligated to keep the Sabbath that they're creatures, not the Creator. We need to rest because our bodies wear out. God didn't need to rest. He just established it as a pattern for us. Further, the fact that God rested on the seventh day doesn't tell us the whole story. As Jesus asserts in verse 17, my father is working until now. On that original seventh day and on every Sabbath day and every other day thereafter, God continued to preserve and uphold the world that he made, and he still does. This world only exists. All of us are only here today because God wills it because he keeps sustaining our hearts beating and atoms and molecules holding together. We're here because he is sustaining creation right now. Does God work on the Sabbath? Well, yes, in the sense that he continues to do what only he can do. He sustains all created being. He gives life and he takes it. Babies are born on the Sabbath, and people die on the Sabbath, and only God, finally, is the one who can bring that about. Of course, unlike our labor, this providential, conserving activity requires no effort on God's part. He upholds all things by the same effortlessly effective word by which He created all things. You can see Genesis 1-3, Psalm 33-6, Hebrews 1-3. Nevertheless, Jesus appeals to the fact that as the Creator, God is exempt from the Sabbath regulation that binds his human creatures. And Jesus insists that this exemption covers him too. In other disputes over the Sabbath, again, Jesus appeals to human precedent for his actions. What did David do when he and his men ate the showbread? Things like that. But here, he appeals to a divine precedent. In John 5, 17, Jesus invokes a rationale for his actions that only holds for the creator of all. Further, in our passage, the creator-creature distinction is discernible in a series of uniquely divine acts and attributes which Jesus claims for himself, such as conserving creation on the Sabbath, like we've just seen, but also raising the dead in verse 21 and having life in himself in verse 26. We'll discuss all these in more detail later, especially under the unity and equality rule. But for now, we can simply observe that each claim presupposes a radical distinction between God and His creation. And each claim identifies what uniquely pertains to God alone. Only God, who gives life, can raise the dead. Only the one who has life in Himself is able to bestow life as and where he wishes. And so, the creator-creature distinction is necessary intellectual equipment for both discerning the sense, the meaning of these divine prerogatives, and for understanding why Jesus claimed to possess those divine prerogatives generated such outraged opposition, which brings us to rule two, the principle of God-fittingness. The principle of God-fittingness. This principle says that, when Scripture uses language befitting creatures to refer to God, we should interpret that language in a manner suited to, a manner consistent with, God's categorically unique being as Creator. In other words, 
The principle of God fittingness teaches us to recognize that throughout Scripture, God accommodates His revelation of Himself to fit our understanding. He stoops down to our level and speaks of Himself in human ways. So this principle teaches us to discern the pervasively anthropomorphic character of scriptural speech about God. That's a big word, but it simply means that Scripture takes language that properly applies to human beings and applies it to God to make a point about how He relates to us. But in doing that, it does not thereby imply that He shares any of our weaknesses or limitations. And this principle teaches us that Scripture frequently speaks of God analogically or metaphorically. So here's a concrete example. Consider Numbers 23, 19, which says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So when we read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, about God deciding to flood the world, and it says, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. We should not imagine that God is up there in heaven going, oh, that went badly. Okay, let's, let, let, let's, let's lay that aside and try something else. When Scripture says God regretted, it's because it's using a metaphor drawn from human experience to help us relate to the fact that God is saying, this all did go bad. We are going to do something different, but I'm reigning over that in sovereign judgment. It's not like it was a surprise. It's not like things got away from God on a bad day. Whoops, there went humanity. Okay. It's using human-shaped language to help convey a divine reality. Scripture uses anthropomorphic language to help us understand God's sovereign and judicial acts in response to our sins and follies. So it's sometimes necessary to invoke this principle of God-fittingness in order to understand what Jesus says about himself. For instance, in verse 20, when Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him, shows Him all that He Himself is doing, we should not understand this in literal or physical terms as if the Father had a body or the Son's divine nature had eyes. Again, we'll discuss this more fully under Rule 4, but we need to understand this particular showing in a manner that fits the divine nature. So here, I'm just briefly going to identify a sense in which the principle of God-fittingness is a necessary inference from the logic of this text as a whole, particularly the logic of the dispute between Jesus and His opponents. After Jesus claimed the divine prerogative of working on the Sabbath in verse 17, in verse 18, we read, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus' opponents were seeking to kill him because they understood his words to constitute the capital offense of blasphemy. Blasphemy is an utterance that affronts God by denigrating or impinging on his transcendent uniqueness. That Jesus' opponents understood his words to be blasphemy is evident in light of close parallels elsewhere in John. So I think I put these on the handout. Let me pull up my handout. I didn't put these references. Well, you can write these references to other chapters of John down. 8.53, in response to Jesus' claim that his word gives eternal life, his opponents ask him, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? 
Then in 859, after Jesus' confession, before Abraham was, I am, we read. So they picked up stones to stone him. Stoning was the punishment for blasphemy. They were going to carry that out on Jesus for what he said. And then in 1033, Jesus' opponents explained their intent to stone him. They say, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. In all these passages, Jesus' opponents are not wrong to oppose blasphemy. The Bible itself prohibits blasphemy. You can see that in Exodus 22, 28, Leviticus 24, 16. Nor are they wrong to conclude that a creature speaking of himself in ways that only befit the Creator amounts to blasphemy. Nor are they mistaken in hearing Jesus' words as a claim to divinity. They're right about all of that. Instead, Jesus' reply only confirms and strengthens his claim to divinity. The only error of Jesus' opponents is their failure to recognize that the one who's uttering these words in front of their faces really is the Creator. That's the only place they go wrong. That's a pretty big place to go wrong. But everything else they're assuming is right. So the concept of blasphemy rests on the principle of God-fitting speech. The Bible's warnings against blasphemy prohibit wrongly ascribing to a human being what is only fitting for God. So this principle of God-fittingness recognizes that seemingly creaturely predications of God need to be interpreted in light of His unique divine nature. God doesn't repent. He doesn't change His mind. Uh, he's not really a rock something like that, right? He, he is a rock, but metaphorically, as a fortress. He's not limited and composed of certain minerals. That's not what it means when Scripture says God is a rock. You have to interpret God as a rock in light of His divine nature. It tells us something of His character, His presence, His provision for us. So, the principle of God-fittingness is a verbal reflex of God's transcendent being. When the creator-creature distinction rightly rules our speech, we speak of God in God-befitting ways. And we interpret Scripture's anthropomorphic expressions in God-befitting ways. Only God-befitting concepts rightly pertain to God, and God-befitting concepts rightly pertain only to God. Rule number three, the inseparable operation of the Trinity. Our third rule is that all the external acts of the Trinity are inseparable, meaning the Father, Son, and Spirit each perform all of them. As the patristic scholar Lewis Ayers has put it, summarizing Augustine's teaching, in every action of one of the divine three, the other two are also to be found at work. Why is this? Ayers continues, because the divine three are inseparable, they are not divided spatially or temporally, and there is only one divine will and nature even as Father, Son, and Spirit are each the fullness of that will and nature. Or, as Athanasius put it in the 4th century, so the Trinity is holy and perfect, self-consistent and indivisible in nature, and it has one activity. The Father does all things through the Word in the Holy Spirit. In this way is the unity of the Holy Trinity preserved, and in this way is the one God preached in the church." This rule emerges not from just one passage of Scripture or only a handful of passages, but from the scriptural conviction 
that there is only one God. Therefore, only one divine essence, nature, and power. And therefore, that the three persons of the Trinity are not three distinct causal agents who, as it were, touch creation at different points and in different ways. If that seemed a bit abstract, hang in there and we'll see some details in the passage. Look at verse 19. You'll see this written up on your handout. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Here, Jesus responds to the charge of blasphemy by unpacking His assertion from verse 17. As the Father works until now, so does the Son, because the Son does everything the Father does. And He even does it in precisely the same way. Note how Jesus comprehensively identifies the matter of His and the Father's actions. Everything the Father does, the Son does. And Jesus also identifies the manner of His and the Father's actions. Everything the Father does, the Son does likewise. That is, in the same way. Among modern biblical scholars, the most perceptive comments I've found on this phrase in verse 19 are those of Hans Christian Kammler, which I'll read for you. Thereby it is said, in principle and without any restriction, that between the action of the Father and the action of the Son, there is always and everywhere a perfect parallelism and conformity. Indeed, one may even speak of a unity and identity of the action of the two, namely, the uniformity of the actions of Father and Son is emphasized here, and these refer comprehensively to one and the same object. This can only mean the action of the Son is itself the action of the Father. As Jesus says in John 14, verse 10, the Father who dwells in me does His works. The Father and the Son act inseparably because they exist inseparably. The action of the Father and the Son is one because their divine power is one. As they are, so they act. One God, undivided and indivisible, distinct only in their eternal relations of origin. Rule four is the unity and equality of the divine persons. And here I'll just mention, this is a lecture on the Trinity... But so far, we're just talking about the Father and the Son. This passage only focuses on the Father and the Son. And if you take some of these lenses and tools and concepts, you can bring them to Scripture's teaching on the Spirit. There's some things that would be different because the Spirit didn't become incarnate. But just as a kind of hint, you can sort of unpack that and take these tools and put them to work yourself. Uh, or ask me questions in the Q&A time, and we can work on the Spirit. But again, this is just focusing on the Father and the Son, given the content of the passage. The unity and equality of the divine persons. Our fourth rule is that they are united and equal. They exist in essential, ineffable unity. And all that it means for God to be God is equally true of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in Philippians 2.6, uh, Paul implies this when he says that prior to the incarnation, the Son existed in the form of God and was equal to God. Our passage makes six assertions about Christ that are rightly understood only in light of this rule. Each of the following six assertions ascribes to Christ a unique, distinguishing, divine perfection or prerogative. 
like we talked about under the creator-creature distinction. In other words, John 5 attributes to Christ what can only be true of God and thereby identifies Him as one with and equal to the Father. Uh, This first one is just kind of summarizing what we've seen so far. Verse 17, Jesus calls God His own Father, implying that, like the Father, He works to sustain creation on the Sabbath. So that distinctly divine action of conserving everything in creation, that's His. That means He's one with and equal to the Father. Second, Jesus does all that the Father does. Uh, Insofar as the second half of verse 19 attests the Son and the Father's inseparable action, it thereby attests the Son's divine unity and equality with the Father. Only one who is united with and equal to the Father can do all that the Father does, and in the same way. As the fourth century theologian Hilary of Poitiers said, he to whose nature it belongs to do all the same things possesses the same nature. The Father's and the Son's unity of act reveals their unity of being. The Son does all the Father does because He is one God together with the Father and the Spirit. Third point, in several verses, Jesus asserts that He has the uniquely divine power to raise the dead. Look at verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Verse 25, Jesus asserts that by the power by which He gives life to the dead, He will not only raise people's bodies on the last day, but will accomplish spiritual resurrections in the present. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And then finally, in verses 28 to 29, we learn that those whom He wills to give life to in verse 21, will ultimately include all people, both righteous and wicked. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Scripture teaches that since God is the sole life giver, only God can give life to the dead. Deuteronomy 32, 39, see now that I, even I am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And note that Jesus does not merely claim to be God's instrument in, in the Father's unique work of raising the dead. So, for instance, Elijah and Elisha prayed in answer to their prayers, God gave the dead life. That's in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4. But unlike those two prophets who prayed and God answered their prayers, Jesus says to the dead, arise. Talitha kumi, little girl, get up in Mark 5. He says to Lazarus in his tomb, come out. Jesus Himself gives life to the dead, and He grants this gift of life to whom He will. The Son freely, sovereignly exercises this divine prerogative. The Son's unconstrained ability to raise the dead demonstrates His unity and equality with the Father. A fourth divine prerogative, Jesus grounds His claim to give resurrection life in the assertion that He possesses the unique divine life, life in Himself. Everyone else who has life has life as a gift from God. Only God has life in Himself. As the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. 
This life in himself is a uniquely divine attribute. And so the verb granted refers to the Father's eternal gift of the divine essence to the Son. And verse 26 grounds verse 25. It establishes or warrants verse 25. Jesus can give life to those who have lost their lives because He possesses a kind of life that can never be lost. Jesus can do what only God can do because He has what only God has. Verse 26 thereby offers us one of the clearest sights of the deep conceptual structure of our entire passage. Jesus shares what He has. He gives what He is. Jesus' words give eternal life because He possesses Himself a limitless, unbounded, everlasting life. A fifth divine prerogative. In verse 22, Jesus claims the divine prerogative of executing final judgment. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That the Father has given all judgment to the Son presumes that this judgment is His exclusive right. Similarly, in verse 27, and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. And then again, uh, in verse 30, Jesus declares, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. In dozens of places, Scripture teaches that God will judge all people. Genesis 18, 25, 1 Samuel 2, 10, and dozens more. Certainly, God often delegates earthly temporal judgments to human agents, whether to the people of Israel as a whole in Genesis 15, 16, or to the Davidic king in Psalm 72. Still, it is God alone who is the judge of all the earth, as Abraham confesses. Yet there is one passage of Scripture in which God delegates final, comprehensive judgment to a human agent. That's Daniel chapter 7, especially verses 13 to 14 and 26 and 27. We'll consider this passage later in another rule, but for now we can simply note that Daniel's depiction of God authorizing a human agent to execute universal judgment does not make judgment any less of a divine prerogative. Instead, it reveals the divine identity of the Son of Man, which we'll come to in a moment. Sixth and finally, Jesus receives worship. To what end has the Father given all judgment to the Son? Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Here, Jesus claims precisely the unique honor, the worship that is due to the Father. All are to honor the Son just as they honor the Father, in the same manner, to the same degree. Only one who is one with and equal to the Father may be worshipped as the Father is worshipped. Otherwise, we're committing idolatry and blasphemy by worshipping one who isn't really God and therefore worthy of worship. Further, Jesus makes worshipping Him the test of whether someone worships the Father. That's what He says in verse 23. One cannot truly worship God without worshiping Jesus. These are stunning statements, and they answer the charge that verse eight, uh, the charge of verse eighteen, that Jesus was making himself equal to God, which implied that he was thereby dishonoring God. 
It is not Jesus who dishonors God, but all who refuse to honor Jesus as God. So six assertions that ascribe a unique divine perfection or prerogative to Christ, thereby demonstrating that He's one with and equal to the Father. Rule number five is appropriation. This is a theological, sort of exegetical term. Appropriation is the practice in both Scripture and our reflection on Scripture in which a feature belonging to the nature of God, common to all three persons, is specially ascribed to one of the divine persons. For a biblical example, consider the benediction of 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which Raymond closed our gathering this morning with. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Does this verse mean that only God the Father is loving? Or we have fellowship only with the Spirit, not with the Father and the Son? Or does it mean uh, that only the Lord Jesus Christ is gracious? No, it doesn't mean any of those things. It's just appropriating. It's ascribing uh, in, in, a, in sort of a highlighting kind of way that attribute or act with one of the divine persons. Paul attributes grace to Christ because he incarnates it. He attributes love to God, that is, God the Father, because His sending of the Son uniquely manifests His love, like the giving of a gift manifests your love for a family member or friend. He attributes fellowship to the Spirit because it is the Spirit's act of dwelling in us that brings us into fellowship with God. The Spirit creates fellowship, so Paul ascribes fellowship uniquely to the Spirit. Appropriation highlights a particular act or attribute, or it names a divine person by a particular act or attribute, but it does not thereby deny that act or attribute to the other divine persons, or sever one divine person from another. In our own passage, we're going to consider just one, one element of this. Again, John 5, verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus' act of executing judgment reveals His unity and equality with the Father, as we've seen. And, as we'll soon see, under the form of a servant rule, the Father's act of giving judgment to the Son pertains to the Son in His incarnate state with respect to His human nature. Yet here we need to consider this passage from still another angle. Jesus says the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, it would clearly be a false inference to say that God the Father does nothing in judgment whatsoever. How could that be? Is He retiring before the final judgment? Is He going to take a day off that day? Right? That would be absurd if you say, well, God the Father finally, absolutely doesn't judge anyone. So, what does Jesus mean? What does Jesus mean? I think here we have to block the false inference that the Father is inactive in judgment and in order to do so, we have to appeal to the rule of appropriation. In light of the inseparable operation of the Trinity, we should understand Jesus' negation here as denying that the Father alone judges anyone, and as asserting that the Father will not be the visible agent who executes judgment. Instead, the Father has appointed the incarnate Son, the Son of Man, as His eschatological delegate, and the Father will be active in and through the Son's work of judgment on the final day. In contrast, 1 Peter 1.17 affirms that we call on God the Father, 
who will judge each one impartially according to their works. So Scripture positively attributes final judgment to God the Father. Jesus and Peter are not contradicting each other. Peter would have been there hearing this conversation Jesus was having. But Jesus is appropriating the act of judgment to himself without denying that God the Father is active in judgment. Rule six, the Christ is one and the communication of idioms. Really, it's two, two rules, but I had to sort of bundle them together. In the book, it'll be two rules, but here we go. We'll treat them together, save a little time. We combine two rules into one. It's a special sale I'm running, two rules for the price of one. Uh, they fit together nicely. Here's what I mean. The rule, the Christ is one, perceives that Scripture everywhere speaks of Christ as a single acting subject, a single agent. There's only one who in Christ, in whom the two what's of divinity and humanity personally unite. One who, two what's. One person, two natures. Therefore, Scripture names Christ according to either nature and ascribes to him what belongs to the other nature. That's a pattern of attribution or predication, asserting things about Christ, that's called the communication of idioms or properties. So, some scriptural examples are these on the handout. Well, they are not, but you can write them down. Uh, scriptural examples of this. Colossians 2.9, the man, Jesus Christ, is the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's a man, and the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. Or 1 Corinthians 2.8, the Lord of glory was crucified. The Lord of glory is a name for God. God is the Lord of glory, the King of glory, the one to whom glory alone is due. But he was crucified. He suffered the human fate of crucifixion. Theologian Bruce Marshall points to John 1, 1 to 18 and Colossians 1, 15 to 20 for two complementary ways that Scripture embodies this pattern of speech. I think it's a clarifying quote. I'll read it. Uh, he says, whereas John takes the logos as subject and describes flesh to him, the Word became flesh. Colossians takes the crucified human being Jesus as subject and describes the fullness of God to him. These two paradigms jointly display the logical pattern which governs the developed doctrine of incarnation and is clearly at work in the claim that in the creature Jesus, all things hold together. Whatever is true of the human being Jesus of Nazareth is true of God. That's what John tells us. And whatever is true of God is true of the human being, Jesus of Nazareth. That's what Colossians tells us. Or as Thomas Aquinas puts it, Holy Scripture attributes without distinction those things which are God's to this man and those things which are this man's to God. That's the doctrine of the Incarnation. And it's just observing how Scripture speaks in light of the reality that the eternal Son of God united to Himself a full and true human nature. So if you, were, if you joined with us in, in the gathering this morning here at Christ Church, we confessed uh, the Chalcedonian definition. And this, this twin conviction that the Christ is one 
and that Scripture sometimes names him according to one nature and attributes to him what belongs to the other. That, that, that's just unpacking what's there in this classic confession of the church. Or alternatively, it shows you that the classic confession of the church is just unpacking what's there in Scripture. In our passage, the singularity of Christ's personhood is evident throughout, that the Christ is one. Jesus does not conceal within himself two agents, uh, a divine one and a human one, who sometimes like take turns poking out from behind the stage like Muppets or something, right? There's only one him. In verse 18, it is because he is a man, speaking God-befitting things of himself, that his opponents are so incensed. Jesus' opponents' problem is their refusal to accept the reality that warrants Jesus' own use of the communication of idioms, so to speak. He is standing before them, plainly a man, speaking with a human voice. His vocal cords project air that vibrates at them. That's how they hear him. But he's asserting of himself what is only true of God. This man is working on the Sabbath just as God does. He does everything God, his Father, does. He raises the dead and gives them life because he himself possesses the unique divine life. He will judge all men. He must be worshipped as God the Father is worshipped. All these divine attributes and acts are rightly predicated of this man, because he is God the Son incarnate. He is the only begotten God who became flesh for our salvation. This leads us to another complementary rule, rule seven. And we're closing in, we're rounding the corner, only two left Rule seven, the form of a servant rule, that's borrowing Augustine's language, or what patristic scholar John Baer has called partitive exegesis. This rule recognizes that Scripture speaks of the one Christ in a twofold manner. One Christ, two ways of speaking. Scripture says some things of Christ with reference to and on the basis of His human nature, and other things with reference to and on the basis of His divine nature. Insofar as Christ is man, he is less than the Father and obedient to the Father. Insofar as Christ is God, he is and always remains one with the Father and equal to the Father. So, you'll see uh, that in, in our passage, the form of a servant rule helps us recognize the human force and scope of several assertions Christ makes about himself. For the sake of time, we'll consider just two in verses 20 and 27. Though you could also look at verses 22 and 30. So first, in verse 20, after stating that the Son does everything the Father does, in verse 20, Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son and shows, himself all, shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. Why the future tense? Why is it that He will show Him greater works? It's because here, Jesus is not speaking about His relation to the Father simply as it is in itself eternally, but He's speaking of how His human, incarnate interactions with the Father reveal, manifest, disclose that eternal relation. He speaks of His own future acts as works the Father will show Him in time because He's referring to a future time in which He will perform them. Most likely, these greater works are, first, that He'll raise Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, and then raise Himself from the dead after His crucifixion. Hence, 
after he has just described him, uh, ascribed to himself the uniquely divine dignity of doing all that the Father does, Jesus shifts his speech downward. It's as if he's crested a hill and now he, he downshifts down to the human register. As Augustine remarks on this passage, and you'll see this quote on your handout, at least part of it, he is coming down to our level, you see, and the one who a short while ago was talking as God has begun to talk as a man. If we are aware then that this person talking to us is both God and man, we should be able to take his words as being those of God and of man. Sometimes, you see, he says to us the sort of thing that suits his majestic loftiness, God-befitting speech, sometimes the sort that suits his humble lowliness. He indeed is the Most High who stoops low down to the depths in order to lift our lowliness up on high to the heights. Further in verse 27, Jesus returns to the theme of judgment from verse 22, and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Here, Jesus appeals explicitly to the chief scriptural paradigm of the Father's grant to the Son of this authority to judge, namely Daniel 7, 13 to 14. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Daniel 7, 13 to 14, we read, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Our verse, John five twenty seven, is an expanded citation of two phrases from the old Greek translation of these verses. He gave him authority and son of man. The literal meaning of the phrase, one like a son of man, is one like a human being. This office of judgment, of son of man, coming and being given dominion that Jesus executes, presupposes his incarnation. That's why he appears like a son of man, like a human being. The son had to become man in order to become the Son of Man. And in our verse, Jesus gives this phrase, because He is the Son of Man, as the reason why the Father has given all judgment into His hands. It is precisely in His capacity as the risen, glorified, still embodied and still incarnate Son of Man that Jesus will visibly return to earth and judge all people. The one who will execute judgment on all people living and dead at the end of time, He'll raise them to life execute judgment on all. The one who will do that is a human being, a human being who is also God because He is God the Son incarnate. Verse 27 teaches us that Son of Man is what we could call a theandric office, from the Greek words for God and man, a theandric office. It involves the exercise of divine prerogatives that Jesus performs as a human being. Jesus needed to receive this authority in order that, as man, he would execute the office of judge in plain view of all. As a man, Jesus will do what only God may. He'll judge all people. As Augustine concludes, employing the form of a servant rule and the communication of idioms. So it is the Son of Man who is going to judge. Not, though, by His human authority, but by His authority as Son of God. 
And again, it is the Son of God who is going to judge, though He will not be manifested in the form by which He is equal to the Father, but in that by which He is the Son of Man. Rule 8, somewhat of a culmination to all these, the from another rule. And again, that language is paraphrasing Augustine from his treatise on the Trinity. Last and by no means least, the from another rule discovers that some passages teach that the Son is eternally from the Father and the Spirit is eternally from the Father and the Son. This is particularly relevant for the Spirit if you get into John 14 and 16, uh, which we can go into more detail in Q&A if you'd like. As Augustine said, summarizing this rule, you see it on the handout, this then is the rule which governs many scriptural texts intended to show us not that one person is less than the other, but only that one is from the other. As with the unity and equality rule, as well as the form of a servant rule, there are many assertions in our passage that can be rightly understood only by discerning that they refer to the Son's eternal relation of origin from the Father, meaning not that He was created, not that there was ever a time when He didn't exist, not that He came into existence like a human son does from human parents, but that eternally He exists from the Father. He eternally receives His personhood. He eternally receives the divine nature from the Father. That's what it means for the Father to be the Father and the Son to be the Son. We've already considered most of these passages, but here we examine them from another angle, an, an angle that is complementary and just as necessary. Again, we've seen in verse 17 that Jesus declares, my Father is working until now, and I am working. And in verse 18, His opponents take this as a blasphemous claim to equality with God. Here we note simply that this claim, which does indeed imply equality with the Father, is the assertion of a relation. It asserts that the Son has God the Father as His Father, and that is a unique relation. In other words, in this verse, Jesus does not merely assert His equality with the Father, but proclaims a relation that constitutes Him as the Father's equal. The Son is equal to the Father because, as the Nicene Creed says, He is God from God. The Son is equal to the Father because He is His Son, eternally begotten by the Father. In verse 19, Jesus declares, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. That's my translation of the Greek, of Himself. In interpreting this verse, it's important to keep in mind the decisive evidence we've seen throughout our passage for the Son's unity with and equality to the Father. Further, we should recall similar statements elsewhere in John 7.16, my teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. Or 14.10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. So consider the phrase in 5.19, which I've rendered more literally than the ESV does as he can do nothing from himself or of himself. In, I will argue briefly that this should be interpreted as these other negations throughout should be, as referring to the Son's eternal mode of existing from the Father. 
bear with me, this will be our last sort of detailed bit of exegesis, our last kind of deep dive into the details of the text. In order to rightly understand the first half of this verse, it is crucial to read it in light of the second half. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. Then it gives the reason for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This verse is equal parts denial and affirmation. In the first half, Jesus denies that He does anything of Himself or from Himself. In the second half, He asserts that He does everything the Father does. The positive claim is as categorical and comprehensive, as all-encompassing as the denial. And we can only understand this denial in light of the affirmation. It's not just that the Father, that the Son does only what He sees the Father doing, but that the Father shows Him everything that He Himself is doing, which means that everything the Father does, the Son does too. As Jesus reiterates in verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. Therefore, as we saw under Rule 3, the Father and Son act inseparably. But the affirmation of verse 19 rules out using Rule 7 here, the form of a servant rule. If the Son does everything the Father does, then He is speaking of works that He does as God, not as man. In other words, Jesus' frame of reference here, what He has in mind, is not restricted to His incarnate activity. In saying that He does nothing of Himself, Jesus' words give us some purchase on. They grant us some insight into the manner in which He exists and acts as God the Son. He is speaking about Himself in a divine key, not a human one. Further, Jesus' denial cannot mean that the Father acts prior to and independent of the Son, and then the Son acts subsequent to and in imitation of the Father. Why not? Because as John 1.3 tells us, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. There's nothing that the Father made apart from the Son. Everything He made, He made through the Son, with the Son. So if we conceive of the action of the Father and Son as the Father making first and showing the Son what He made, and then the Son making what the Father made and then making it Himself, well, we've contradicted John 1, 3, and we've succumbed to a form of intellectual idolatry. We're thinking of the Father and the Son as creatures rather than the Creator, as if there's a kind of divine workshop up there. Here, here's how you make an elephant. Okay, first, poof, I'll make one, then you make one. You got it? You got, you got the elephant? Okay, good. Now, now that you've seen it, well, you can go and make it too. That's not how it works. That's how humans work. Well, of course, we can't make elephants, but you know what I mean. <laughs> That's how humans make chairs and tables and pulpits. Okay, I'll make one and show you how to do it. That's not how the Father and Son work. The Father created all things through the Son. The Son created everything from the Father. So we can't explain Jesus' words with reference to His human nature, and we can't conceive of the Son and the Father's acts on the model of two creaturely agents working independently, one after the other. As Rule 1 warns, we must not import any creaturely conception into the action of the Son and the Father of which Jesus speaks. That the Son sees the Father acting does not imply that He has eyes. As Rule 2 teaches us, we must interpret this expression in a God-befitting way. What then does Jesus' denial that He can do nothing of His own accord or from Himself mean? It means 
that He acts from the Father because He exists from the Father. He does not act from Himself because He does not live from Himself. As He is eternally, so He acts in time. Jesus is seeing all that the Father does is a metaphorical description of His eternal generation, His eternal act of being from the Father. To see is to receive knowledge. Jesus receives knowledge, being, power, wisdom, and all that He is as God in the Father's eternal act of begetting Him. The Son acts from the Father because He exists from the Father. He receives from the Father the power and knowledge to do what the Father does, because He receives from the Father the unique divine essence of the Father. As He says in verse 26, just as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. So, in a theological move strikingly similar to John 14, 9-11, Jesus denies that He acts of Himself precisely in order to justify the claim that He acts as God, that He does what only God can, giving life on the Sabbath. Jesus' denial that He acts from Himself is precisely what verifies His uniquely divine identity. It is, it is His existing from God the Father that makes Him God. If we had time, we could discover a similar dynamic at work in more verses in the passage, but you all have already engaged attentively and patiently through an exceedingly dense and demanding lecture. So I'll wrap up the exposition there and offer just a few brief conclusions, kind of zoom out, take a step back. What do we learn, not just about the Trinity, but about how to read Scripture and how to do theology from this exercise? You will see a few brief points of conclusion on the handout. In this lecture, I've argued and tried to demonstrate by exegesis that these eight rules for reading Scripture's witness to the triune God are harmonious coherent, and to a significant degree, mutually entailing. They imply each other and fit together. Many of these rules imply or derive from the others. By showing this, I have also demonstrated that theology is exegesis, and good exegesis is inescapably theological. Exegesis, the interpretation of the scriptural text, is not merely the analysis of historical background or the situations of the writer and the recipients or word meanings, grammar, flow of thought, intracanonical connections, and the unfolding of redemptive history. Exegesis is also, inescapably, reasoning about the subject matter of the text, namely God and all things in relation to God, all things as they derive from God as Creator and are ordered to Him as our final and perfect fulfillment. While we can distinguish exegetical reasoning from, from, dog, from dog, dog, dogmatic reasoning, exegesis follows the way the words run the passage. Dogmatic reasoning discerns and reasons about the ultimate object of the text, God and all things in God. We can distinguish these modes of reasoning, but we must not exclude dogmatic reasoning from exegesis. Exegetical reasoning accounts for an individual passage. Dogmatic reasoning accounts both for what a given passage teaches about its ultimate subject matter and what the whole Bible teaches about its ultimate subject matter. 
Proper dogmatic reasoning does not move us away from Scripture to theological construction. Instead, rightly ruled dogmatic reasoning stays within Scripture, moves within Scripture, and delves deeper into the inexhaustible riches of the mysteries declared in Scripture. And as Raymond uh, spoke about and prayed about in the introduction to this lecture, what is the ultimate goal of using a toolkit like this to rightly read Scripture? Rightly reading Scripture demands that we purify our minds, that we purge our conceptions of God from any intellectual idolatry, however unintentional. We all have certain natural, almost reflexive ways of thinking about God as if He's the sort of really, really, really biggest kid on the block. And discerning distinctions like this is kind of like taking an intellectual shower to rinse away those accidental unintentional, idolatrous conceptions of God. Rightly reading Scripture with the help of these rules stretches our minds in order to strengthen our souls. The more clearly we perceive how God is different from us, the more fuel we have for worship. As a fitting conclusion to this lecture, we can consider Augustine's comments on the way in which Jesus pivots back and forth in this very passage from speaking of Himself as divine to speaking of Himself with reference to the human nature He assumed for our salvation. Here's Augustine. How He twists us around and juggles with our minds leading them hither and thither. He will not let them stay in any single place favored by the flesh, but He twists them about to exercise them, exercises them to clean them up, cleans them up to make them spacious, makes them spacious so as to fill them. Thank you very much. I look forward to our conversation. Stay here. Sure. Oh, it's an excellent question. Ah. Uh, the way you have stated it there, the short answer is no. And you kind of have to look at this from a couple different angles, all right? So, if you knowingly deny and reject that Jesus is one with and equal to the Father, Jesus just told you from John 5.23 that you do not honor the Father. So, in that sense, if you don't worship Christ, and worshiping Christ implies and presupposes the doctrine of the Trinity. Otherwise, what are you, a polytheist? What's going on? If you don't worship Christ, you will not be right with God on the last day. So in terms of your fundamental posture, your fundamental orientation, you have to have a kind of living confession of the Trinity in order to be a Christian at all. Um, 
And so a sort of knowing rejection of the Trinity is rightly classed as heresy, meaning the kind of error that condemns your soul eternally. That's the kind of basic answer. But if that sounds very scary, I think there's another way to come around to this and say, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you know the Trinity. And I mean personally. You've been indwelt by the Spirit. You pray to the Father, and you do that through faith in the Son. And so, if you know the gospel, if you trust in Christ through the gospel, you know the Trinity. And I don't just mean abstractly, know about. I mean know personally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, in that sense, the gospel gives us the Trinity. The Trinity is from the gospel, and the gospel is in the Trinity. So, if that sounds like a scary theological test, oh no, does my going to heaven depend upon me passing a sort of theological exam? I might not be prepared for it. Well, relax. If you're trusting in Christ, you are living in the reality of the Trinity. So, I, I think I want to say both of those sort of equally. And of course, we're justified by faith alone and Christ alone. And there's all kinds of times when the doctrinal errors that we might somehow fall into might seem like absolute consistency would require that they, they sort of burn their way all through our system and our life and our doctrine, but God preserves us and protects us from a lot of the consequences of our errors. So, that's just another qualification I would offer. A kind of knowing denial or rejection, I just have to kind of conclude, well, well no, you don't really know the Trinity. You can't, you can't do that. Jesus says if you don't worship Him, right? But on the other hand, so this is kind of part one, part two, part three. Part three is God preserves us from some of the worst consequences of our errors. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, we lose the gospel. <laughs> we lose the God of the gospel. We lose also, if even if we might affirm the Trinity, but sort of put it on the back burner, we lose a kind of living sense of the shape of our salvation, the shape of our relationship with God. Through Him, that is through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. That's a Trinitarian shape of our salvation. You know, God sent His Son, and not only His Son, but He sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts so that we cry out, Abba, Father, and we become sons in the Son. So if we lose the Trinity, and if we lose a sort of lively sense of the importance of the Trinity, uh, we lose a, a, a kind of living awareness that to be a Christian means to be adopted into God's family. Not only that, it means to be adopted into the very relation that the Son eternally shares with the Father. He brings us into that. That affection, that affirmation, that security, that knowledge, that intimacy with the Father. I can keep going, but we'll give time for another question. Oh. Sure. Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, I think one really important element would be expositional preaching, just preaching through books of the Bible. The Bible is God's witness to, the, the, the Bible is God's own triune self-naming of Himself. Uh, so teaching through books of the Bible, this will come up. Now, in a different way in the New Testament than in the Old. Um, but you shouldn't believe it if it's not in the Bible. So if you're preaching through books of the Bible, this should get there. And some parts, some parts of Scripture more sort of intensely and deeply than others. So that would be a fundamental answer. 
uh, and pastors especially should, as they make the main point of a scriptural text, the main point of the message, they should also be alert to times when they can sort of help the members of their church sort of lay a doctrinal foundation, you know, maybe do a little retrofitting. If this part's gotten a little weak or neglected, okay, we can sort of camp out there a little bit. I try to do that at least a little bit in my own preaching. Um, I think, let's see, that's one element, expositional preaching. Uh, Another element would be sort of unashamedly theological teaching in other parts of the church's life. So our church has a whole 13-week adult Sunday school class on systematic theology. Uh, and that has plenty of teaching on the Trinity. Uh, that's just for any, any, anybody who wants to, uh, to visit the church. You know, we encourage members to come. It's open to anybody. Uh, that's part of our ongoing sort of adult education program. So that's, that's another element, kind of more focused, topical teaching that can help. If, if I'm just trying to go through passages of the Bible in my Sunday morning preaching, uh, that helps us get more topical theological teaching. Um, another one, you know, another element would be there are great and devotionally rich little books on the Trinity, so just a couple to name. Scott Swain's new book, The Trinity, An Introduction, is excellent. Uh, he does a great job of biblically elucidating the doctrine and giving you sort of conceptual framework for it. It's also very practical and devotional. Or Mike Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity, is another one. He'll, he'll do what from the Father? Okay. Sure. And go ahead. And that's specifically this idea that Christ gives up his reign and sort of submits to the Father, and you're saying that divides the Trinity? Is that the issue? Sure. Well, that's a very good question. And sorry, tell me your name again. David. David, are you here at Christ Church Westchester? If you follow up with me, I've got an article David can read. It'll be more in-depth more than I can go into here. But actually, David, there's a verse that that person was probably thinking of, which is 1 Corinthians 15, 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, it sure sounds like that verse is supporting what that person was saying, more or less. And I think the key to resolving the sort of theological difficulty you might feel is, is not that it divides the Trinity or that he somehow can't really be submitting, but actually back to Rule 7, the form of a servant rule or part of exegesis. So, in this passage, Jesus is fulfilling a messianic commission, right? Son of David, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So that's a human, messianic king. But he's also divine. 
Because sitting at God's right hand, he's sitting on God's own throne. So it's both a human reign and a divine one. And, and remember, he exercises this reign in his incarnate form. He's an embodied human being. He's the true Adam, fulfilling Adam's call to exercise dominion over creation. He's the son of man to whom authority is given for a specific purpose. He's the messianic king who brings all of creation into subjection to God. And then I think what we have to say is basically that Paul is speaking with reference to Christ's human activity. It's a sort of uh, king delegating to a general, go and subdue this rebel people. And when you're done, mission accomplished. That specifically human, messianic, mediating, redemptive reign will come to an end. But of course, there's other passages of Scripture that talk about even the Messiah's reign never ending. So there's a sense in which it ends, there's a sense in which it doesn't. And I think the key, the sense in which it ends is insofar as he's a human being and he has this delegated authority. Uh, he, he finishes his mission and he sort of render, you know, returns back to the sender who sent him. So I don't think we need to see it as dividing the Trinity. I think we just need to remember some passages speak of the Son as God, some passages speak of the Son as man. And I've got an article, it's a little dense, but you might want to follow up on it. Yeah, if Rami can get it to you. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think um, there is a sort of narrower and broader definition of blasphemy in Scripture. Like, sometimes it just seems to be sort of anything that is sort of disrespecting or denigrating God's name, His character, that type of thing. So, just speech that is not giving God the reverence and, and fear that He's due. But uh, the way they're using blasphemy in John's gospel is that it seems to be a human making himself out to be God. So, for instance, one of the things that Roman emperors started doing more and more of around Jesus' time, and, and then even a bit later, but it's going on in the first century, is Roman emperors talking about themselves and claiming to be a God, claiming to be divine, making themselves out to have divine powers and dignities. And the Jews called that blasphemy. No human being can make themselves God. There's a sort of unbridgeable gap and gulf there. So, it does seem like even though in Scripture at times there's a broader sense of blasphemy, it basically just means bad speaking, uh, but bad speaking directed toward God. There's a more specific sort of, um, you know, like if I, walked, if I walked down to the Supreme Court, I, I live not that far from the Supreme Court, if I walked in there and walked into the sort of, you know, where the judges sit and took a seat on, the, on a bench... Well, that would be an, uh, a usurpation of authority. It would be claiming a dignity that does not belong to me. First of all, I never would make it in the first place because of security and all that. But let's say I did. Well, I'd be escorted out and I'd probably have to pay a fine or go to jail or who knows what, right? Because I'm claiming something higher that doesn't belong to me. So in that more specialized sense, it's like this belongs only to God. Who are you to say that you have that too? Does that clarify that sort of more technical sense of blasphemy? Sure. That's a great question. Plenty of church fathers do. I'm with, well, short answer, I'm not sure. 
Slightly longer answer, I'm still not sure. Yeah, I don't know. It's really tempting, um, but I don't know. Sorry. Okay. And wasn't there a hand? Uh, got it. Okay. And there's also a hand right in the, yeah. Okay. Sure. Sure. Uh, what is their sort of religious commitment? Okay. Um, do, do they affirm the total truthfulness of Scripture? Uh, let's see. Yeah, Oneness Pentecostal. I, th- I mean, just reading Scripture can be a good thing together. So reading John's Gospel or even the other Gospels, if they're willing to do that, just sit down and look at it together. Because since they have the baseline affirmation of wanting to submit to the authority of Scripture, since they want to be devoted to Jesus and worship Jesus, um, you might try to just read Scripture together if they're willing and just try to ask questions wherever their theological commitments just don't seem to fit with the text. So oneness Pentecostalism ultimately can't account for the Son, the Father, and the Spirit all relating to each other. Because there has to be a sort of phase or in, in God's life or manifestation of God's life. That's not really, that threeness is not really there eternally. So John 17 could even be a really good passage where Jesus talks about the glory I had with you before the world began. Um, yeah, that the Son's relationship to the Father goes back to before the creation of the world. Um, I haven't studied oneness Pentecostalism in depth, so I'm sure they might have certain ways they would try to explain that. But yeah, I think just reading Scripture and asking questions with, if, if, since we're talking about oneness Pentecostals. Yeah. 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 It's a, that's a great question. It does seem like there's a kind of hint. For instance, even if you go back to Genesis 1, right? Let us make man in our own image. Now, there might, you might be able to attest patterns of speech where kings speak in a royal plural or that kind of thing, right? But also, like, in Genesis 1, God creates by speaking a word and the Spirit hovers on the water. God creates by His Word, and the Spirit is active. It it seems like, in light of the fuller revelation of the Trinity in the Old Testament, that there's at least hints, foreshadowings, patterns that that get more light shined on them in the Old Testament. And, you know, so whether whether this is a sort of divine Trinitarian plural in Genesis 1.26 or Isaiah 6.8, I'm not sure. Maybe. I'm open to it. I could sort of go either way. Um, I think some of the passages that attest the Trinity the most clearly in the Old Testament 
would be ones that anticipate the sending of the Son and the Spirit. Because there you have God the Father's active, and He's promising to send someone. And especially where that someone is portrayed in divine terms. Uh, And so I think some of the clearest foreshadowing of the Trinity is where God is predicting exactly how He's going to save. So all those passages about, I will pour out my Spirit. The Spirit's not just an attribute or power of God, but, uh, but you see in light of the fuller revelation of the New Testament, really a distinct person. Uh, or, you know, the, the Davidic king who's going to reign on the throne in Isaiah chapter 9. Well, Isaiah chapter 9, he's called mighty God. And it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that this really clear attestation of, wait a minute, he's actually divine. Well, it comes in the context of, well, this is the messianic king. This is the deliverer. This is the one who's going to be sent. So where you have the pattern of the father sending the son and sending the spirit most clearly anticipated... That's where I would say you probably have the strongest Old Testament evidence for the Trinity. And and so, I'm sort of answering a question you didn't ask, which is kind of the question of how do we get the Trinity from the Old Testament? What kind of evidence are we looking for? I could go either way on divine plurals, but those would be some stronger, I think, um, because it's anticipating our salvation and the disclosure of, of the divine identity in it. Yeah. Yes. That's an excellent question. And oftentimes, it's not a sort of absolute black and white case, must be one or the other. So like in Aquinas' commentary on John, he very often will go through, and there'll be sort of different church fathers on different sides of exactly this kind of question. And even in that verse, there's different church fathers on different sides of is this giving to be interpreted in that way, like the eternal giving of life, uh, and thereby the right and the authority to judge? Or is it referring to his messianic commission? Because of the son of manness, that's why I take it that way, but sometimes it's not like absolute black and white, crystal clear, so the context has to determine the broader scriptural warrant. And I would just say that sometimes, you know, it's pretty difficult to find a verb tense in a human language that does the work of an eternal relation of origin. You know, I went to the store. That's a simple past tense. I gave my daughter a gift on her birthday. I sent my two-year-old a video from my wife to give, right? Those are all simple pasts. And just like in the Greek, it's the aorist, the father gave life in himself. It was just a past tense. Now, in context from the whole what is it that he gave? He gave life in himself. You can't give that like on a Tuesday and take it back on a Wednesday. You can't have not given it and then give it sometime later. So it's the whole pressure from the conceptual context that pushes us to say, this is an eternal giving. So in some ways, it's, it's, it's a great exegetical question to notice the same verb tense. But what is the thing being given it sort of determines whether we're talking about eternity or time. That'd be my basic answer. 